you'll see little things like pastors who say like, I, I love teaching, I love preaching, but I don't love, you know, being around people. Or they don't show a lot of empathy. That's a classic narcissistic trait. And it may not always play out as sexual abuse, but they're not gonna be able to pastor effectively with that kind of mentality. But number one, first and foremost, is just power. All abuse comes down to power. Whether it's a strong male with a weaker female, whether it's a pastor who has spiritual leverage over people, there's always a power dynamic in a sexual abuse or physical abuse relationship. Welcome to the Preaching Donkey Podcast, a weekly show where we explore how to preach life-changing messages. I'm your host, Lane Sebring, and I'm so excited to bring you inspiring and helpful conversations with amazing pastors and church leaders, all designed to help you take your preaching and leadership to the next level. And now, let's dive right in. Hey everybody, welcome to the Preaching Donkey Podcast. So great to have you on today. We have an awesome interview coming up with Eric Skwarzynski of the Preacher Boys Podcast. I'll get more into that here in just a second. If you're watching on YouTube, it's so awesome to see you. Be sure to give this video a like and let me know in the comments what you think of today's episode. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play or any of those places, it's so awesome to have you. Be sure to leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. That means so much to me when I see those come through. So thank you for doing that. We're going to have a great episode today. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're ready for a discussion of something that we don't talk about enough. Typically on this podcast, we talk about tactics and strategies to preach better, to communicate more effectively, to be able to proclaim the gospel more clearly. And that's a huge part of what we do. But I wanted to bring on a guest today who is doing some work to really shed light on some of the abuses that are happening within the church broadly, but specifically within a group of churches known as the IFB. And if you don't know what that is, it's a type of church that I actually grew up in called Independent Fundamental Baptist. And he's not just picking on those people. He grew up in that movement too, so he knows the most about it. And there are definitely abuses in every church culture, but he has chosen to really focus on the type of churches that he grew up in because there's just lots of abuses and lots of cover-ups and lots of scandal that kind of go unnoticed and there's a lot of victims in the wake. From this, we can learn a ton about our own leadership, our own churches. Some of you may be a part of one of the independent fundamental Baptist churches, but I, I would guess that there's a lot of you who probably aren't, but you're in in your denomination or your network or your uh, type of church, we can always, always, always put the mirror up to our own church and say, are we set up to make sure that abuses don't happen? Are, do we have the protections and the policy and the structure in place? And do we have a culture of transparency and openness so that we can protect the most vulnerable among us? So this is an interview that I'm really, really excited to share with you. So we're gonna jump right into it. And if you wanna know more about his podcast, I actually did an episode, which I'll link below in the show notes and in the description here on YouTube, but I did an entire episode on his podcast, and I shared my journey of having grown up in that movement and then coming out of it, and now I would consider myself non-denominational, which is what my church is. But if you're curious to know kind of my background and my spiritual journey and all of what went into getting me to where I am here today as the host of this humble podcast, you can check that out. It'll be in the description below. So we are going to jump right into the interview now with Eric Skwarzynski. 
Well, Eric Skwarzynski, it's awesome to have you on the show, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Good to be here. Yeah, so I, uh, I mentioned this when I was uh, introducing the show, but I was on the Preacher Boys podcast, which is your show, and uh, it's a completely different type of preaching podcast than this one, uh, but we'll get more into that later. But before we do, can you just kind of share for those who may not know you and may not know the work that you do, uh, a little bit of your background and, and history and then uh, the work that you're doing with the podcast and the upcoming documentary and all those kind of things. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me on and it was great, you know, getting to talk with you a little bit on my show. Um, yeah, I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist movement, which for people who don't know, it's just a very conservative branch of kind of the Baptist world. And uh, I know it's confusing because they're independent, but they are a movement of churches, uh, usually kind of split up by Bible colleges. So you've got uh, just these large groups of people that kind of congregate together, but they're independent when it comes to not having an organization above them, uh, which complicates what I do in some ways, but I can get into that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I grew up... uh, with honestly really great parents. Um, I, I was a staff kid. My, my dad was a, um, assistant pastor and, or associate, I don't know what his official title is technically, but he was like the second in command over there at the church. And he was the principal at the school. My mom was a teacher. My dad taught classes. So I spent seven days a week on this little campus in the middle of Beaumont, uh, Banning, California, uh, right near Palm Springs. And, you know, my parents were great. They taught me how to think. They were open to questions. They were very encouraging for me to pursue the the life that I wanted and to to use the gifts that God gave me. And uh, but unfortunately, the movement that we were part of was not so understanding and uh, had had a lot of flaws. Um, and so, while I grew up and I have a deep appreciation for a lot of the good experiences I had early on in the movement. Uh, when I got to be about 16 or so, um, that veneer started getting fractured a little bit. I started seeing uh, abuse cover-ups. I started seeing, you know, a lot of scandals with like, like pretty high up pastors within that world, and uh, it just burst that bubble in a in a pretty big way. Let's talk about that because a lot of the work that you you do now um, is about helping expose those abuses, and I, I think this kind of you've you've opened. Pandora's box, it seems, where you, you've got just more abuse stories than you can possibly even fit into your, into your show. And this all right. started with your firsthand kind of seeing like this isn't what it should be. Right. What were some things that happened when you were young that you said, okay, this is, this is not good? Yeah. So when I, uh, I mean, there was a, there was a coach who, who we were in Southern California, like Palm Springs area. And there was a coach from a um from a school that was up in northern california up in chico and uh his name's jesse rule i mean you can google him i mean it pops up in all, all the searches when you when you find his name and um anyway i found out all of a sudden that he was coming to church and i thought it was kind of interesting because you know that's a big big gap and a big jump and um uh, i ended up you know texting one of his team members that i knew and I said, man, aren't you sad that he's, he's leaving, that he's not going to be your coach anymore? And he's like, not really. He's like, he didn't even say goodbye to us. And I was like, that's super weird. So I literally that night Googled, you know, okay, Jesse World to see if like there was a church announcement or something, like something that said why he moved. And the first 
two or three articles that popped up were from the Chico ER, which were saying, you know, that he had basically molested a 15 year old girl from the school. And so I had this information. This is my first time ever realizing that this can happen within my denomination. I mean, up to that point, you know, the pastors would get up in the pulpit and preach about Catholics with abuse and, and like some of the bigger stories that were coming out around that time. But I didn't think that would happen in my denomination. Like that seems improbable. But I sat there as a 16-year-old without knowing what to do with the information. I didn't know how to process it, didn't know who to go to. And so for the first few weeks, I just kind of like would tell my, I told one or two of my friends, um, I told, um, I told my parents pretty quickly, um, you know, and, and so all the people started finding out like about a few months in, you know, the, and, and eventually got to the point where like the pastor knew and, you know, when Jesse first got there, I mean, nobody knew he went to take over a sixth grade Sunday school class. He was leading music. He was doing specials. And I mean, fresh out of this ministry where this had come out and I'm sitting there going like, I have all this information. I know something's not right here. I don't know how it needs to be dealt with, but I was looking around and seeing all of these adults, you know, that were supposed to be the people I trusted. I trusted for 18 years of my life, right? 16 years of my life at that point. And I was like, why don't they think this is a big deal? You know, like, why is this being treated as like such a, an aside? And, you know, it kind of pushed me. I got pushed out a lot by, you know, my youth pastor, by, by people who were upset that I kept asking those questions and it pushed me just to more research. Like, does this happen more than just this one time? And so I started like, literally I'd be before church, like we'd have a guest speaker. I was Googling them. You know, I was, I was researching everything about my own denomination at 16, 17. And then I'm going out and like, why don't you care? Like I was literally asking people like, why don't you care about this? And, uh, you know, now it's, I'm 25 and I'm still kind of sitting there asking the same question. Like, why don't more people care that this happens and it's happening at the scale it's happening? So. Yeah. So, wow. So you had a, a, like firsthand in your church, you had a guy who, I guess his previous church had no, they, they didn't feel the need to inform the church he was going to. Well, that's the strange angle of it is that, you know, my pastor was told, and I have no reason to believe this is untrue. If it is, then my pastor lied to me, but I know him enough to know in this instance, I don't think he's lying about this. What he told me was that the, the, uh, the offender's father, who was the pastor of the previous church, had called my pastor at my existing church. And he said, Hey, me and my son have a ministry disagreement, and I think it would be better for him to serve in a different church. That was kind of the the reaction. That was kind of the the explanation that was given. Um, and so my pastor was kind of blindsided when he found out. Uh, when I told him the news, he was pretty shocked. And then even when I had told him, like it wasn't until I presented the article a few months later when he was like, "Oh, like this is actually like a bigger thing than what I understood it to be." And so. Uh, when that happened, they pulled him from the platform. They pulled him out of the Sunday school class, but he was back up in a couple months to the to the platform, leading music back to normal. Um, and then uh, he didn't go back to Sunday school, but he's he's still there to this day. So he's still up on the platform every single Sunday, uh, which is pretty pretty confusing. So, so this took you through a journey where you actually exited this movement at some point between seventeen and six or seven years ago, correct? Right. Yeah. It was, it was after I graduated high school, I was, I was lined up to go to an IFB, an independent Baptist Bible college. And 
you know, I just, I was kind of fed up at the time. I thought I was fed up with just church in general. Cause in my mind, I grew up in the church, like, like every Christian, I thought my denomination was the right one. And so I was like, if that's shattered, then I'm kind of sick of this church stuff in general. Like this is all cover-ups and and deceit and people are two-faced and like, I'm sitting there going like I'm 16 or 17, you know, and then going to college, like I'm, I'm 18 years old and the 50 and 60 year olds in my movement, my own spiritual counsel don't have an issue with this happening. And so um, it, it really pushed me out, but luckily I, I took an internship where part of it was connected to a church and going there, I got to hear the gospel really clearly presented. And I, I mean the gospel for, justification, sanctification, like it was like, it was the gospel and, and the whole idea of being a gospel centered life and like passionately serving and following Jesus became part of my life. Like it it was like a, I think that's when I truly became a Christian was during that time period. And it really, I think if I would have gone to Bible college, I think it would have probably put the nail in the coffin as far as my faith journey. And so I think it was a it was a really good decision to to take the route that I did. Um, and so now, you know, now I'm, I'm, yes, I'm upset about abuse, but now I'm even more upset that the gospel is being misrepresented so strongly by churches that do abuse. So there's that layer. People think that I'm attacking churches and they question like, are you a Christian? Are you this? I'm like, yeah, part of the reason I do this is because I'm a Christian. And like, this is my home turf that this stuff is going on. Hmm. Yeah, it's you do get a lot of hate, and and for those who want to Google Preacher Boys podcast, you've you've gotten on the radar of of quite a few people. Uh, right. But I will say, as someone who and some of our listeners may not know this, but I grew up in the same movement. I grew up in Independent Fundamental Baptist movement, and you mentioned something that I for those listening who may not have an idea of what some churches in this movement are like, or maybe the movement overall. I do want to mention there might be some listening who are in independent Baptist churches and we're not trying to throw hate uh, your way uh, because if you believe the gospel and you love Jesus and you're, you're teaching the word um, then we're like, we're for you, but there Mm -hmm. are, there are, there are some systemic issues within this movement that have come out um, in just about every episode of your podcast. So the question I I have is you mentioned you go to this, you take this internship that's connected to the church and you really, for the first time in your life, hear the gospel in its truest, purest form. What version of the gospel had you grown up with in IFB? Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, the version I grew up with was, was very much an, an, an easy believism kind of, you know, walk the, walk the aisle. If you're scared, you're going to go to hell. I remember evangelists coming in and saying, you know, if, if, if we're right, you know, you have everything to lose. If we're, if we're wrong and you say this prayer, you have nothing to lose. Like, why not just take care of this? You know, literally using the term fire insurance, you know, like, well, at least you won't go to hell. And that was pretty much it. And then when it came to sanctification, when it came to the process of like, of like growing and it was all on you, like, it was like, okay, you know, salvation's a free gift. Christ died for all. He gives you this gift of salvation. Pray this prayer, repeat after me. And now you're a Christian. Now you got to do the hard work. And, you know, even though once we become a believer, you know, we're empowered by the Holy, you know, like we, we've, we're, we're supposed to pursue good works. It's not something that's on us. Like the gospel is for justification and sanctification. And so what I had heard one, I think, I'd struggled to call the gospel. Um, I, I, there was no repentance. There was no, and I know that there's, you know, a lot of theological, 
you know, gymnastics and the way people define different words, but there's no repentance. It wasn't about me pursuing Christ as Lord. It was me solely looking at Christ as savior and saving me from hell. And so in a lot of ways, it was this pseudo kind of spiritual prosperity gospel where it was like, I'm getting saved for heaven, not for who God is and wanting to spend eternity worshiping him. It was very much like, I don't want to go to the hot place. Like one of my previous guests has said, it was totally just fear induced gospel. And when the dynamic switched from going to that, to hearing that, you know, Christ is everything we need. He is our Lord, our savior. He is the, you know, uh, through him and to him and like everything is for his glory, understanding that and, and having that dynamic changed everything. And so at that point it was me saying, I want to follow Christ, not because I get to go to heaven. That's part of it but I want to follow Christ because Christ is worthy of being followed. Hmm. And it was a totally different game changer and everything else falls into line really quickly. You know, repentance becomes the easier conversation once like I'm giving up something that is worthless for something that is worth everything. And then moving into the sanctification phrase it, it, phase, it's not, now I have to put on a suit. Now I have to go to church this many times. Now I have to fill out this many, you know, connection cards and bring in this many visitors. And everything we do becomes an outflowing of that love for who Christ is. It's not us hitting this checklist to make God happy with us. I, I remember so many times sitting in chapel services and it was, if Christ was sitting next to you right now, would you do this? Or what would you do? Like if Christ was sitting there, would you watch that movie? Would you wear that outfit? Would you do this? And it, it it was such a backwards way of looking at it. it was such a it was such an acceptance, you know, driven kind of thing where it's like, if I do enough, God will accept me. And it's like, no, the gospel is that Christ has already accepted you. Like you're accepted based on his merit, not your own. And when I really understood that, I remember just sitting there and just reading and every week it was like that got stronger and stronger of understanding that for the first time. It was a it was a total game changer. Yeah, I, it's the the picture of Jesus is that he's this hall monitor who's just waiting for you to step out of line and break a rule. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller is that religion is, um, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And and I think like the the motivation in a, a lot of uh, legalistic churches, whether in IFB or otherwise, that teaches kind of workspace sanctification is uh, you're accepted, but you better obey because if you don't, you're, you're really, God's going to be, he's, he's just really upset with you. Um, so when it comes to the other side, so, the, so th there's, there's, the, there's the legalism and the, the distortion of the gospel, and that's a huge deal. And then you have the abuse, but then you also have the cover-up of the abuse. And you mentioned that the thing you're most upset with is not necessarily, if I'm, I don't want to misquote you, but it's not so much the abuse itself, it's that the abuse is overlooked, covered up, excused. Would you, would you say that's fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so here's the reality is that if you get a hundred people in a room, like the odds of one of those people being a bad person is pretty, pretty strong. Right. And, and that's where, um, you know, when you look at the Catholic church and you see the abuse scandals, you know, for a church with millions and millions and millions of members across the globe, the odds that someone who identifies as Catholic also being a pedophile is like, it would be, it would be a miracle upon miracles if there wasn't one, you know, if there wasn't right. a thousand, if there wasn't 
tens of thousands. Like just a numbers game will tell you that. Um, the reality is, is that it's how you handle those situations. And, and you, you hit that. Uh, I, I interviewed a very staunch IFB pastor, um, Stacy Shiflett, who takes a really hard stance on abuse. And, you know, he said, as a pastor, when you find out there's abuse in your church, you're a victim of circumstances. You know, when, when I find out that so-and-so in my church has been violating someone else in my church or violating a child or, or someone in their own family, I didn't do anything as a pastor to bring that burden onto the church, but it's what I do in those next moments that determines whether I'm complicit or whether I'm doing something to take action against it. And far too often churches across denominations tend to be complicit rather than engaging it head on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting is when, when you compare, because a lot of people attack you and they say, why just the IFB? Isn't there abuse in other places? But to your point, there are only like 3000 IFB churches in the U S and if you multiply that by an average attendance of maybe 50 to a hundred, right. you're not talking about a whole lot of people, but you are talking about a decades, <laughs> significant of amount. Yeah. Significant amount of abuse for the size of the movement. Um, it's a, it's a pretty startling amount. I mean, even with 3000 churches and, and the number is hard to again, pin down because these aren't the type of churches that often take surveys. So, um, you know, you've got an average, I think it's three to 5,000 is what I saw reported, um, most commonly. But I mean, if you have the numbers that I'm seeing and the amount of stories I'm hearing coming out of this small movement just from the past couple of years is, is pretty startling. But even beyond that, like, yeah, that's a reason to focus in. But also, that's what I come from. So I can speak to that with a little bit more knowledge of how it works, the system, like how do cover-ups happen within that context. Um, I spoke with a, with a Jewish woman who talks about abuse within Jewish communities. And I was so lost when she was talking to me about how it works and, and how the structure is and the dynamics between men and women, because I don't come from a Jewish culture. And so if I'm going to be effective, I have to speak to what I know. And I think that's true of any communicator is you have to, you have to focus on your strengths and your, your kind of background and knowledge rather than, you know, speaking too broadly. Uh, a great way to say this is you can speak really broadly and like kind of mildly touch everybody and like, kind of like, Oh, I kind of get what you're saying or you can be laser focused and actually impact a very specific group of people. And I'd rather impact very specifically and narrowly than kind of just gently touch on everything across the board where nobody really gets, it's, it's just, okay, we know we heard it and let's move on. So. Right. And no, I can definitely attest to that. Cause when I found your podcast, I was like, this, this is me. Like, this is my people. Like right. he's talking about ex experiences that I relate to from when I was, growing up. So let's talk about that. So, um, because there are some, there are some lessons that can be learned by pastors at any church, whether they're a part of the independent Baptist church movement or not, uh, about how these abuse, first of all, how abuse happens, like what systems are lacking where abuse can be high and then what accountability is lacking and what needs are there in IFB churches, but all churches? Like what have you seen and what would you say to that? Well, those two things kind of go hand in hand. The accountability problem is one of the biggest causes. Um, again, abuse happens across context, denominations, Christian, non-Christian abuse happens. And there's a very, you know, it's something that's hard to pin down as what, what creates that, per, you know, that type of person. What is it that, that, 
pushes someone to to think that that's okay or like what mental illness is behind that what you know there's a ton of disagreement within the the mental health community and like psychology community about what makes a predator. Um, I just interviewed someone who, who focuses on it. He says, who cares what makes them? Let's talk about what they are and how to identify them Hmm. Um, because you're never going to get to the bottom of it because you're dealing with very deceitful people. So you can't ask them, why do you do what you do? You're never going to get a straight answer. Um, But getting into why it happens practically, I think accountability is one of the biggest things. I, I think the culture in independent Baptist churches particularly, but also in many, many churches, there can be, um, you know, we think about celebrity culture, like what happened with Carl Lentz or what happens with uh, Tulian Shabidian or, you know, Bill Hybels, fill in the name with celebrity pastors. When there's an overwhelming amount of power given to one person with very little accountability, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, it, it's kind of like having a king, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, if you had a king who was a good man, things ran really well. The system, you know, was in the king's favor, but it was fine because you had a good king. But the minute you had a bad ruler take over in that system where there's no checks and balances, it was pretty bad for everybody. And so I would say the on the side of the churches, I think it's just when there's way too much power given to one person, no checks and balances. Um, and within the independent fundamental Baptist movement, there's no accountability from other churches. You're operating very independently where you don't even have any other organization or board or elders above you to say, hey, what's going on? Like, what, what is this that's happening here? Um, I would recommend to your audience, like any pastor, uh, church planner, church planning committee, uh, anybody working within the church realm, uh, Chuck DeGroat wrote a really good book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And he identifies the reason that so many pastors, um, you know, become like really abusive narcissists when they get into these high positions is that a position of authority like that is going to draw a lot of narcissists. So you have to be able to identify some of the tenants of people who, you know, have those tendencies. Some of the, um, some of the things that look like really strong leadership um, kind of traits and things that we say like, oh, that's great. He'll be a great church planner because he's confident. He's this. Sometimes that can be just a mask for something pretty negative underneath. So you have to be very observant and uh, really do your due diligence in examining how this stuff plays out uh, over time. Because um, there is, I mean, you'll see little things like pastors who say like, I, I love teaching, I love preaching, but I don't love, you know, being around people, you know, and, and they don't show a lot of empathy. Like, that's a classic narcissistic trait and it may not always play out as sexual abuse, but they're not going to be able to pastor effectively with that kind of mentality, you know? So there's, there's a lot of things like that, but, but number one, first and foremost is just power and all, all abuse comes down to power. Uh, whether it's a, whether it's a, a male, you know, a strong male with a weaker female, whether it's a pastor who has spiritual leverage over people, there's always a power dynamic in a sexual abuse or physical abuse relationship. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting with uh, some of the the high profile cases that you mentioned is a lot of times the the power uh, disparity is almost immeasurable because you've got a guy who sits atop this throne like you said the king a king is a great example 
and the only people around him are people who work for him, <laughs> you know, or people who need slash want his approval and friendship. I think about those high profile cases that you mentioned. And, you know, one name that comes to mind is like James McDonald. You know, he was the pastor at uh, Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago and ended up getting fired over something that was really just a the end result of years of this buildup of just power and and um, anger and abuse and domineering you know leadership style that no one could really speak into but by the time it kind of manifested itself in a really public way it was too late they they had to let him go and uh, you know it's 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 sad because like you said, a lot of times these people are very talented, but it, it attracts a certain type of people that can grow a church really large and, and yet have this kind of need for the power and the, and the prestige. What's interesting is when I listen to your show, most of the people who talk about abuse situations, it's not by some massive well-known name. It's a youth pastor, it's in, in the IFB world, it's a bus captain, it's a bus director, it's a, you know, it's somebody who just happens to be working in the church with the kids, with the students, may or may not even be staff. And these things are kind of the, the systems that need to be in place to keep people uh, accountable, to, to, to keep people from from just kind of uh, being in a trusting environment because they're in a church, they're with Christians. And so, there's there's not maybe the background checks that need to that need to happen and that kind of thing. Can you speak to what you've seen in that regard? Yeah, you just hit something right there. I mean, we don't want to believe this will happen in a church. You know, we don't want to think that someone would take advantage of a church. You know, like it's it's a it, we have this kind of naive you know kind of understanding of how this stuff works, and we we say like no one would do that in a church. Like no pastor would do that. Like it doesn't we can't reconcile that in our mind, but the reality is um, these areas and these, these positions draw people who want to abuse. Same with coaching, uh, same with any position where you can have a, a, any role with like children, especially we're talking like, like child abuse, any role with where there's power for you when you have like narcissists, which I think like James McDonald's story kind of reflects that, um, you know, you, they look for opportunities to have more power. And so what, uh, what people don't realize is that a lot of like, let's just narrow in on predators for a second. Cause that's the majority of what I deal with predators specifically I mean, there's some that will literally go to seminary and become pastors because they know it'll give them a very trusting uh, position within an organization. Um, you, you mentioned youth pastors, bus directors, like they want to be in a place where they can um, have easy access and a lot of trust. And so people, I've literally talked with um, psychologists who've talked to me about stories where they've talked to people who went to seminary, went through literally like very difficult college courses to become a minister, to get access to more power for this purpose. You know, youth pastors um, will become youth pastors just for the sake of doing this. Uh, one case that I dealt with, um, he literally had used a story of a prior staff member and used that to threaten one of the victims saying like, you know, the church isn't going to do anything. So like he was already knowing going to the role that he had this kind of extra power to get away with whatever he did. Um, luckily he didn't, he ended up getting busted and, and going to prison. Um, but I mean, guys look for these spots. And so, um, you know, many, many times we, we like to think that the, 
the predator is this kind of creepy guy who's like kind of sweaty and standing off in the in the corner the scary thing about it is that they don't look like monsters like they literally it, it's when you go into a room and you see the kind of weird awkward guy off in the corner it may not be him it might be the the pastor in the suit who's like charismatic and super you know kind and cool and hip that has 20 or 30 people crowded around him like these people are incredibly charismatic. They're incredibly good at wearing two different faces or three different faces or have five different lives. Like it is, you know, grooming is not just, Hey, I'm going to groom this victim. Like grooming is I'm grooming you and you and your parents and this staff member. And so, you know, it's, it's just naivete on the church's part to say like, Oh, We'll, we'll be able to spot it right away. Like we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to spot that weird guy and we're not going to let anybody do this. But the reality is the person that you're trusting the most could be the person that doesn't deserve that trust and doesn't need that trust to put on them. If that's the case, and, and I think, you know, you're, you're right. Like there, there's, there's going to be predators in, in any environment. Yeah. They're going to connive and manipulate to get access to victims for those listening, and most of my audience is pastors, most people listening to this or watching on YouTube are pastors. And, you know, for, for someone in, from what you've found from talking to now dozens of abuse victims and hearing the accounts of how the church has dealt with it, what have been some of the most glaring mistakes that led to more pain and more hurt after the fact? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I, I just interviewed the, the authors um, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. They wrote a Tove Church um, or a church called Tove, and uh, just means a good church. And just that a good church does not protect the institution at the expense of an individual. Hmm. Um, it's one of the big takeaways in the in the book. And um, the biggest mistake I see is the same mistake we see across the board: is we we tend to not believe the uh, the abused and we tend to instantly believe the abuser. And again, it comes back to that power dynamic comes back to that accountability. It comes back to when you have someone in a position where they are the unquestioned authority, that's a dangerous place to be. And there's so many cases. I, I think of one of the victims I talked to just said, if someone had come in a room, cause she said there were plenty of times where I was being abused and someone would walk into the room and we'd, you know, he would stand up straight and like, we, it would look like it would look a little fishy and they'd look at us and then they would just kind of like leave or they do what they need to do and then go out again. She said, if one person would have said, Hey, what's going on? She said, it could have ended everything. Like nobody would ask the question. And so the biggest mistake is just, we don't ask good questions. You don't ask, Hey, why were you driving with that person alone? Hey, Hey, why was, um, you know, I noticed that, you know, there's this, this purchase that we can't understand. You know, I noticed there, were, there was a pastor that I covered on the show who literally opened a phone line on the church account, you know, and gave a cell phone to a minor to communicate with. Nobody had access to the finances to say like, why is there another phone line? Who's that to? Why is the pastor calling this number every day for hours on end? You know, and so you know, not, not asking questions. And then when an investigation happens, I'll, I'll break down two things that are often mistakes. One, don't investigate it yourself. Hmm. When, when, when something happens, there's plenty of organizations. Um, there's grace. It's godly response to abuse in a Christian environment. Um, they do, they do independent investigations. Um, they are very thorough. They're unbiased. There's no, 
you know, you're not sitting in it going like, well, I know so-and-so all those things that would block us from being objective, hire someone that can come in and investigate for you. And then separately, uh, the, the place where people tragically mess up constantly is with handling the victims. Um, one, a, a victim is not there for you to interrogate or blame or shame for what happened. Um, a lot of that just comes from, you know, even if it's not intentional, just sloppy counseling. Um, pastors are spiritual guides. You know, they're great for counseling when it comes to spiritual direction, but there are literally medical traumatic things that happen as a result of abuse. And so asking the wrong question the wrong way can do as much damage as the initial abuse did. And so I would just really encourage pastors. I have pastors reach out all the time who say, this happened. I hate abuse. I don't know how to deal with this. Like find someone outside of your church who is a, a licensed, and I have to hit that twice for Christian audiences, a licensed therapist, not someone well-intentioned, you know, who can open the Bible and show them something, someone who can work through expressing like, how trauma works, your trauma responses, you know, diagnosing anything uh, like PTSD that's that's often common, things like that. Um, it's so easy to just try to take it in-house, but you have to find someone outside of it. And, and also just from the perspective of the victim, most victims don't want to sit in a church office when they've likely been abused in a church office, you know? So even that stuff like that is like, you know, I, I've had people reach out who are like, I don't want to go to a therapist because I don't want to sit across from a guy in a suit in a leather chair in an office because that's yeah. triggering for me. Yeah. And so I have victims that are literally doing art therapy or they're doing, you know, therapy that's outdoors with someone in a more casual setting. But that's stuff that just you or I who are not trained in that can't prescribe what's going to work best. And so I would just say, don't re-traumatize the victim by trying to force them through your kind of guidelines for what you think needs to happen next, like default to the experts when it comes to the investigation and when it comes to kind of the treatment of the situation. Wow. That's really good, man. So, so if I could recap, don't be afraid to, to ask questions when you see something going on. Right. Uh, and, and really, uh, this is something that, um, I, I, brought, I can't remember if I was having this conversation with you or somebody else, but so often abuse is something that, uh, and I see this on your show and I see this everywhere where we think, or pastors think, church leaders think that it's going to hurt the church if this gets out, yeah. but it really will hurt the church way worse once it gets out and, and everybody figures out that we covered it up. Right. Well, it, yeah, it is going to hurt the church. You know, it, it's true. And that's a valid thing. Like, like when you expose abuse, it's going to hurt the church. Like you're going to have the, there's going to be that, that thing where people are going to say, oh, that's where that one guy was, you know, but it's going to hurt you so much more if you're known as the church where that one creepy guy was there and did that. And that's the church that covered for them. That's going to do way more damage to your reputation, which, which also if your reputation, again, if, if you're protecting the institution and you think that's more valuable than someone's entire life being damaged by an abusive situation, your priorities are totally wrong. Um, and so, but yeah, it is, it's going to do way more damage to your church, to the gospel, to, you know, your religion, to be the church that covered it up. Um, and so asking really good questions, and this is not being accusatory. I'm not saying walk into a room and see something a little bit off and accuse them. 
in a, and walk into a room and see something off and then accuse them. Just ask what's going on. What, what, what answer do you get to that question? You know, yeah. what response, Hey, where were you guys at asking that question? If, if nothing's wrong, it's going to be, Oh, well, we were just doing this like, Oh, we, you know, it's going to be a very clear answer. It's not going to be this, uh, 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 you know, fumbling kind of response. Um, and so you don't have to walk in a room and be like, are you touching that girl? Cause that's, <laughs> you know, that's awkward. And if nothing is going on, you've still made a bad situation happen. So, right. so go in, just ask a really clear question. You don't have to be accusatory and, and get a good response uh, to it. So, yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting what you're describing really is, is a culture of transparency where mm -hmm. it's okay to know what's going on. There's no secrets. Uh, this is one of the things that we're, we learned from a really great book teaching our kids about abuse is that there are no secrets. There might be surprises, uh, but there's no secrets. Secrets are, are, are th something that, uh, you know, groomers will use with, with children. Hey, this is a secret. This is just between us. No, there's no secrets. You, you can the say the first step you... of every abusive relationship is a right. secret. Yeah. Right. And uh, so I think like if there is a church culture where there's, there's secretive stuff going on, there's people that'll, uh, you know, two people that maybe are always hanging out together. Maybe they're always in an office behind a closed door. Uh, they're always, you know, well, what are they doing? What are they talking about? Why do they need to spend so much time together? What's happening? Um, is there a third party present? Um, like asking those questions really could prevent so much pain. And then uh, what you said about bringing in a, a third party, I think it's awesome because you're right. And, and I think, honestly, I think most pastors are more than willing to hand these things off. I think some of them feel guilty because they think, well, I'm the pastor. Uh, is this going to communicate that I don't care? So I think it's really good for pastors to hear, no, there are people, you're skilled in these, these things, right? You're mm -hmm. skilled in preaching, teaching, leading this church, and shepherding these people. But under certain circumstances, your skills are better used by referring them to someone who can really care for them. I mean, you're, you're not doing heart surgery on your people to care for them. You really shouldn't do therapy right, <laughs> on your kids. Right. I mean, on your, on your people. So I think, I think that could be really liberating for pastors who, whether the abuse happened on their watch at their church, or it's just someone who walks in and says, Hey, I need to talk to someone. The answer may be, Hey, let's talk. But, and I've done this several times as a pastor, but someone, someone will come to me and they'll want to talk. And by the end of it, I'm referring them. I'm saying, Hey, th this is, this is something that you really need to sit down with a professional. And here's a reference to someone who's really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really important. It, it, it is, it's really, um, it's just a really valuable thing to know. And it is, it is very freeing to know that you can pass it off to someone. And you, like you said, you're not doing heart surgery for your congregation when they're, when they're sick. You know what I mean? Like you're not taking the role of surgeon. And, and again, that's another thing where it's just in, in the Christian world, we tend to have this, there, there's a stigma against therapy very often in a lot of churches, but it is, there are some legitimate, uh, when the body keeps the score, it, lays out so much of the physical ramifications of, of abuse. But I mean, there is some stuff that we're just not prepared to deal with. And like I do, I'm more equipped to talk about abuse than most. I, I've spent more time talking about it and, and discussing with experts than most. I defer all of my practical advice when it comes to that stuff to trauma therapists, to law enforcement. I bring those people in to talk about it.
right away because I'm not going to be the guy giving bad advice to someone who's coming out of one of these uh, relationships. So, yeah, well, that's awesome. So this has been really good. I think it's been really helpful for those, for those listening. Could you talk uh, briefly about your upcoming documentary that you're working on? What is that going to be about? And, and also just kind of how does that tie in with the content of your podcast? Yeah. So the documentary was the initial, um, the documentary was kind of the initial plan. Um, I come from a documentary film background, so I've shot some pretty, some pretty cool stuff uh, in the back and, and I just, I got ready to do it. And I was like, I want to do a documentary on this topic. I had a story that happened uh, about, yeah, November, 2019. And it pushed me to go like, okay, I finally have to do this. I've been talking about this for like seven years. It's time to do a documentary. And I cut together a little proof of concept, three minute kind of intro, just kind of saying what I wanted to do. And the next day, my inbox was like blown up with messages from people who were like, I have a story I want to share. I've never shared it before. This happened like pretty crazy stories of, of abuse. And it was pretty clear, like a week after I dropped that, like there's more stories than I can fit into a documentary. And so the podcast was a reactionary thing, but it was, I felt this responsibility of like, if people want to tell their story, like I'm not going to hold them back because I want to curate like three of the best stories. I want everyone to be able to share, especially if they already crossed that barrier to talk to me. Like that's a ton of emotional energy spent to get that story out. And so I started the podcast. The podcast has been great. I mean, the amount of response and and the positive feedback to it's been incredible. I mean, we hit 300,000 downloads like a month ago, which is nuts considering it's such a niche topic. Um, and so now, you know, the documentary that I was going to start shooting beginning of last year, just self-fund it and shoot it and got shut down because of COVID. Um, now I'm sitting here going like, how do I make something that matches what what's happening on the show? Like, how do you, you know, how do you match the impact of 120 plus hours with a hour and a half documentary? And so uh, I still want to go at the documentary and once, uh, you know, as things are slowly starting to get back to normal, um, I'll get back to shooting and, and as funding starts clearing a little bit, um, you know, that'll, that'll work. Um, I'm, I'm just going to be focused really heavily on the emotional side of it. Like what is the culture that creates this opportunity as opposed to being, here's a date, here's a time, here's a place. I want to talk about the culture of the independent Baptist movement and what cultures perpetuate abuse. So what are the steps of abuse? What do they look like? How can churches actually respond to it? And I think going a little bit broader with it and just raising awareness is going to be the right direction with it. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I mean, I was hoping by now it would have already been out, um, but obviously 2020 went a direction that no one anticipated. So I, I still want to do it, but the, it's a, it's an increasing challenge with every passing day because the show's reach and impact has just been immense. So um, yeah, I, I have a couple of people I want to speak with. I've got a couple experts and talking heads that I'll have in the interview interviews for it. But, um, I think in a funny way, the documentary will become an introduction for most people into the podcast, which I think is where the long running impact is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, according to one prominent IFB pastor in Tampa, you're already reaching millions of people and leading them straight right. to the 80s. So. Apparent, apparently, yeah. I, I wish I could say that was the case. Uh, well, not the latter half. I wish I could say I was reaching millions of people with the show, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. 
Well, 300,000 is no joke. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible, especially considering the show's only been around for a year, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So that's amazing. And I, I highly recommend uh, everybody watching or listening to go to, uh, go to Preacher Boys podcast, pick any episode, especially mine, go listen to mine, but pick any episode. <laughs> Good start. <laughs> and, and just listen to these abuse cases because what it will do for you is it will create a sense of, one, it will create a sense of deep empathy because there's some incredible pain that has been experienced at the hands of abusers in these churches and it will make you aware of what could happen if you were to take a cavalier approach in your church towards abuse and it's not worth it. You, you, I mean, I listened to several dozen episodes very quickly and I still listen to an, probably an episode a week. I can't keep up with your publishing schedule. You put way too many episodes out. Um, <laughs> but it's stories. Yeah. There's so many stories and they're endless. And I'm sure you have a queue a mile long of, of things you can't even fit, but go listen to it because it will, it will make you laugh. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh from just the insanity of it at times, but it will make you cry just from the, the pain that people have gone through and you'll learn a lot. So uh, it's a, it's an excellent show and I can't wait for the documentary to come out. At this point, where can people find you other than kind of Preacher Boys podcast? Yeah, I mean, out? the best place would be at PreacherBoysDoc.com. Um, it's PreacherBoysDoc.com. That'll have kind of links to everything. Um, if you want to connect with me personally, um, I can, you can put it in your show notes, but it's just at Eskorzynski on Twitter. I need to find a way to shorten that into something intelligible. But, uh, but yeah, just connect with me on Twitter, Instagram. Those are my two most active places. Um, and then with Preacher Boys, it's just Preacher Boys Doc everywhere. Um, so we're, whatever social media platform, um, you know, like you said, I mean, I post a ton. So you'll have no lack of content wherever you're following. So, Well, Eric Skwarzynski, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate having this conversation. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. I'm so thankful that Eric came on the show today. Definitely check out PreacherBoysDoc.com. Check out the Preacher Boys podcast. And I would encourage you to take a deep dive, just like I did, into some of these stories. Because what it will do is it will soften your heart. It will give you more empathy for those who might be hurting and suffering, maybe even in your own church or denomination or network. And I think that will make us better leaders the more we know and the more we're aware of some of the evils that unfortunately can happen in the church culture. So that's our show for today. I'm so thankful that you watched, especially all the way through to the end. Leave a comment here on YouTube. Definitely leave a review over at Apple Podcast. Email me if you have thoughts on this episode, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.